in the morning deliberating upon man being a multiplicity and i think that is the real problem of man or at least one of the major problem that we are not one being and we are not even conscious of this multiplicity that makes it worse in fact we move in a very narrow band of consciousness even the most material forces escape us like just now this equipment we don't know what really is working where is the noise coming from even the most material forces escape our attention our awareness and if we take the view of yoga then apart from the material there are many many other forces which move within us around us through us of which we are unconscious so it's quite natural that unless we are conscious we cannot handle them we can of course we talk about these things and we can accept them as a kind of article of faith but as long as we are not aware of the forces that move us in the morning we were talking about that we will not be able to have complete mastery over them and even after we have become conscious mastery still requires a great power of will so we live in a very very small and a narrow band and through our senses we are aware of very few things things that impact us for good or for worse very often it's hard to tell the difference because of course this is our way of looking at it take for instance illness all of us would say illness is bad of course it is bad no doubt about it and one must get rid of it as fast as one can but if you look at it from another standpoint it is a signal of nature something is not right something is not going fine it's like an inner barometer when we don't listen to the subtle signs subtle indicators then these subtle indicators become more and more gross and finally they take the form of an illness very often an illness is a means to reach out to the real issue and one can take uh, a number of examples in this take for instance a very common thing the heart attack and you know people have heart attacks and heart problems and now there are bypass surgeries available all kinds of surgeries and we get a new heart but what exactly led to the heart attack we seldom address it now today we are beginning to find in the field of medicine we have quite a few doctors here and i'm sure they would add and contribute to this knowledge which is gathering fast that many of the things many of these um, symptoms many of these disease complexes they originate in what we call as a lifestyle the problem is at the level of the lifestyle and it manifests as illness many of the disorders are lifestyle disorders and lifestyle itself is not just about sleep and the food we eat the exercise that we do 
but it also involves attitudes, beliefs, all kinds of things. There is a whole complex. Man's body is like a field for the play of many, many forces. When we go still deeper, we find that it's not only about the lifestyle, it's also about our thoughts and emotions and how they influence the bodily states. Very often when we touch only the external part, we miss out on this very crucial change towards which illness is propelling us. It's leading us through a dark door or a dark passage towards an intended change. We have a typical example of a type A personality leading to a cardiac problem. Now, I had a friend, friend means he was a colleague working next to me, our office were just next to each other, by some kind of a providential arrangement because I was dealing with problems of the mind and he was a cardiologist dealing with problems of the heart. So time to time he would drop in and one day he says, um, I have a bit of a problem, can you help me out? So I asked him, yes, what is it? He said, you know, I go on the road and I see a car in front of me and I want to overtake it. I said, fine, overtake it. He says, no, the matter doesn't end there. I see another car and I want to overtake that now. So it was anything that is in front he must overtake. And being a cardiologist, he realized the gravity of the situation because he knew that he is actually having a type A personality and um, he would sooner or later get into a heart attack situation. So he needs to do something about it. But very often we don't realize, we reach a point when symptoms have begun to appear. But we can read these symptoms and from that get on to the roots. And these roots are often not just in the body. Body is like a ground. There are favorable grounds, grounds which are favorable for illness and grounds that are unfavorable, you know, which are strong. So there are people who genetically and heredity wise, they, are, they have a very good ground. The Aadhaar is very good physically. They don't fall ill easily. Whereas there are others where the ground is very weak for various factors. It can be heredity, it can be something else, just the way one is built. But beyond the ground, one has to still probe further and then one sees a very complex play of forces that takes place within us of which most of the time we are not aware because, well, we are very, very unconscious beings and it's only through the practice of yoga that we begin to become aware of the immense complexity of forces that move us at any given point of time. And normally we become aware of them only through the phenomena. For instance, very often people say, you know, I am all the time thinking negative. Now, why is it that I am all the time thinking negative? Something within me is like a antenna which is attracting certain kinds of forces. Forces like fear, forces like... Um, Greed, forces like anger, they move us. And we become conscious of them only when we have actually expressed. It's, it's a tragedy of our life that we don't become aware, say for instance of anger when it has just touched us. If we really trace back the route, we can try this exercise maybe. Um, I don't say that we must try to get angry to observe. There is a famous story about somebody who went to a sage and said, you know, 
I get anger, I get so much anger, what shall I do about it? He said, show me, get it. So he said, no, no, it's not like that. He said, no, you said I get anger. So get it and show me what is what, uh, what that anger is. He said, no, I am not able to. It just comes and takes over me. So we become aware when it has already touched us. But if you really observe, you will observe how exactly anger comes. Just as a little vibration even outside our body and outside our being. And we can sense it sometimes as an energy, just as if something is giving heat in the body. And we, we at that point can stop it. It's very, very subtle. And if we become aware, we can just cut it down then and there. And if we wait for it, if we don't do something about it, then it comes, either it hits here, very often it hits in the pit of the belly. We begin to feel uncomfortable sensations inside. We don't do anything about it, then we end up blurting out. Now then this anger of course projects and we get anger in return because quite naturally, you know, nobody is going to take things lying down, adding to the complexity of the problem. We have expressed and we have taken another truckload of uh, things from outside. So we are moved by many of these vibrations and depending on the nature of the vibrations, our organs within the body respond to them. Mother says at one place and something very, it takes long time to understand that it is desires that irritate the organs. It's amazing. The moment desire rises, the organs are responding. We don't know about it. But they are already beginning to be primed to get something. Often we talk metaphysically that, you know, desire, too much desire is bad. Now we often think it's just philosophy. It's not philosophy. It's a hard fact of nature that our body is meant for desire up to a certain degree. Let's say this much of desire it can handle. Our organs can take it. For instance, if I eat, it's a kind of first the need, then there is a little bit of desire. So stomach caters for that. The moment it begins to increase and there is no object through which I can gratify it, then my organs are already acting as if that object is nearby. They are waiting for that object. And they are irritating. Now if one, we can imagine if somebody is living in a perpetual state of desire all the time, what is going to happen? This organ is going to get more and more and more and more irritated and eventually any organ, if it is overused and under or underused, Shubindo says in one of the aphorisms, mankind suffers most from two things, wrong abstinence and wrong indulgence. Both things create problem. So to start with a very simple rule of remaining healthy is to observe the principle of moderation. If ever there has been a golden rule given for all times and ages, it's a very, very simple rule, observe moderation. It's one of the easier things to practice and one that can lead us in sound health for a very, very long time. What it simply means is that don't observe two extremes. There are two kinds of extremes we observe, whether in food or in our everyday life. One extreme is that we keep on indulging. Obviously, that's not good. And when we reach a point, we observe the backlash. It comes in the form of an illness. The other is we completely deprive. And that is also not good because that also creates problems because the total balance and harmony of the body is disturbed. So, observing moderation. Now, 
if the problem was so simple it would be fine but the difficulty is that we observe moderation outwardly but inwardly we are wanting an object uh, this creates another kind of disequilibrium within us so outwardly we are not eating shurabindo makes a difference between nigraha and sanyama so very often when one takes to spiritual life one has read certain things don't have greed don't have anger don't have this that that so everybody begins to observe nigraha nigraha means forced suppression of things there is a very beautiful essay of shurabindo in uh, one of his earlier writings on the process of evolution and he says it doesn't work out it causes backlash in fact in the gita we have this cryptic sentence when arjuna says i am going to take sanyas krishna tells him well you have given you have been given a certain nature if you act contrary to it it won't work out and he says how will nigraha how will coercion prevail it doesn't work out because if you try to do this it doesn't work out at all so one way shurabindo reveals is that and in fact evolution takes place this way whether we like it or not it takes place this way if we try to practice too much of nigraha it blurts out if we go into indulgence there is a problem so again he says the right way is sanyama sanyama means that there is a regulated channelizing of a particular energy one likes food there is a time for food there is a relishing of food one enjoys it in just the right amount and that's it and one simple very practical way of doing it i mean this is something which i learned from from a person well but it it just happened uh, i had a sweet tooth and so you know and and say strange thing that every day for some reason or the other sweets were present in home and i used to take it that it is mother's grace you know so if sweets are there mother is providing me sweets it was a very foolish thing uh, i mean i understand it now but you know at that point of time i thought that whatever is coming to you is well if it's there mother has provided you and sweets are after all very benign things one need not work upon it and uh, despite a very bad heredity for uh, you know diabetes i would just eat sweets well if i am confident nothing no harm will take place well i was wrong one has to learn it slowly by experience it's not so simple as that then i discovered that well what is the real problem so i tried all kinds of means so i would take sweet drink water and i would realize look for this little taste i am taking it <laughs> that's absurd because instantly within moments the taste is gone then eventually i struck upon a very simple way which of course i learned observing someone and it so happened that someone took sweets very little and it took a long time to finish it so you know naturally you ask want some more he said no 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 i'm fine i'm done now this struck like a bulb inside me and i realized there is a way of eating where you relish but you don't really end up eating more so just a small amount and one takes time one relishes it there is no nothing wrong in that and at the same time one has not overloaded the system so this is i'm just giving an example of sanyama it can work in many ways sanyama is not only about you know sometimes things are there and you eat it but there is a way of doing it 
and um, without bringing in too much of that greed factor, one is relishing it at the same time, the force of that um, thing is becoming weaker and weaker. Now when we exercise Sanyama, that tendency becomes weaker and weaker in our nature. And we can exercise it, at, we have to exercise it at all levels. Say for instance, for anger, mother says, um, start from the outward, don't express it just like that if it comes to you. And still, there would be times when one would end up expressing it. She says, step back. So many ways she has given. One simple way is, step back and see how important it is to get angry at this uh, point of time and for this particular object. And so, as we practice this Sayyama over a period of time, the grip of these energies which move us becomes less and less. This is the basic principle. When we observe moderation, and Sanyama, the grip of this becomes less and less and eventually a time comes when without the attack of illness, the force or the tendency has become so weak that one single movement or well grace and it just drops off from nature. So there is a whole process through which we can work upon our inner self and we don't need to wait for an illness to hit us. Uh, an illness is, as I have said, a reflector. It reflects what is going wrong inside us. And unless we correct it, whatever lifestyle changes we may take place, uh, we may you know, endorse, still even that does not work out. Many times even lifestyle change doesn't work out because there is something else with it which has you know, uh, gone wrong inside. So there was uh, this um, managing director of a company who once came and he was going through a depression and uh, he had tried all kinds of stuff. So he narrated a very interesting incident. He says, once somebody told me that take a break and go and change and unwind, unwind yourself. So he said, you know what happened? And this experience was an eye-opener for me. He says, I went and um, I took a break and went there on to a resort. And it was a lovely resort with swimming pools and tennis grounds and everything. But within three, four days, I started getting tense. I said, why, what happened? He said, well, I played a game of tennis and I lost. And you know, that started working upon him. How could I lose? And he would want to win. So he would look for an opportunity to play again. But again, the fear is coming there. What if I lose again? So actually, when we observe ourselves, we will see that behind all this lifestyle, there is a whole set of attitudes. There is a whole approach to life. There is a whole conception about life. And if we trace this journey backward, we will ultimately pinpoint one thing, that all malady springs from a certain kind of self-regard and world regard that we have. Now, it is inbuilt into a system. It's not that we are born, some people are born with a different kind of self-regard. All of us, to start with, have a certain self-regard and a world regard, and we start a journey like that. And it is this which has already predisposed us to illness at a future date. Nature doesn't mind it because it wants that well after a period of time, mostly we will see that unless things have uh, gone exceptionally wrong, most people when they enter their 40s or at the most 50s, problems begin to come up. Now what has happened by the time it is 40s or 50s, most people have got married and have a child. Nature says your job is over, get out of the way. We don't realize it. Actually, 
in if we observe lower down into the species we will find that the lifespan of a species is directly linked to the reproductive age it is only in human beings that there is a period there is an extended lease of life nature is so wise but if you look down into the lower species the moment the reproductive capacity comes down well one is very close to the graveyard it's amazing and this simple observation opens door to a totally new understanding about life so this new understanding is that nature fulfills a certain purpose in which certain energies move us and we throw out all the time and one of the movements in the morning we were talking about brahmacharya and there is so much shurbinda has spoken about it one of the movement through which we throw out a lot of energy which is really in its origin a energy for creativity an energy which if turned upward can really recreate a new creator world and it is through a movement of lust and lust is not just the physical act of sexuality it is lust in the mind lust to possess the ishupnishad i'm sure shadhalu must have talked about it um where you know it literally says lust not after another man's possession lust not after this because essentially this energy of lust is throws itself out there is a tremendous power energy which is given to us and instead of conserving it it's thrown out through many channels and usually through channels which are largely confined to the animal kind activities within us in fact when we take a step back behind the material scene and observe just the vital field and the play of forces in the vital world in the ancient uh, scriptures the movement of the life energy or the life breath is described as fivefold and there are very nice names about it apan vyan saman etc so two upper movements two lower movements and one central which balances the two now uh this sounds a lot of occult knowledge and one wonders you know what it is about and how does one observe it it's very simple the life energy is the feeder to the body the life energy is feeder to the mind and the life energy is the feeder to the spiritual life if one doesn't have life energy one cannot even practice spirituality try meditating when you are fatigued i mean try meditating when you know one is totally exhausted it's difficult not that it's impossible with practice one can do that's why very often yoga must be started very very early in age even the like the inner life in the 20s i'm not saying that in maybe adolescence but in 20s because that's a time when one has a reservoir of energy if one starts these things past 70 then already much of reservoir of energy has gone away and it's very difficult to feed this life energy for something upward so these two lower movements are nothing but life energy going into the physical channels and life energy going into lower vital activities so life energy that feeds the body and life energy that is thrown out in lust and anger and all the six uh, um, you know demons traditionally <laughs> described in indian scripture kaam krodh lobh moh etc there are two upper movements where the life energy goes into speech and life energy goes into thought which is climbing up and there is a balancing movement between the two to uh, between the four now if we really observe closely most of us 
spend a lot of energy either in throwing it out through the lower channels or in speech. There is hardly any energy conserved. Speech is one of the common forms through which we externalize and throw out a lot of energy. We don't even realize it. And the mother says, especially when we gossip, the most common form of activity which we seem to enjoy is gossip about someone else. And we don't realize, you know, two people when they are um, talking and they are talking about a third person. They don't realize that when, let's say, A and B are talking about C, A doesn't know that when B and C meet, they will talk about A. <laughs> and when A and C meet, they will talk about B. Because it's not about the person. It's very strange that we as human beings enjoy this. This is called Ras of Parninda. As if when we just talk, criticize about others, you know, we get a feeling that we are someone great. We don't realize that every time we actually criticize before someone else is a recipient, I am the first recipient of that energy. It surrounds me. <coughs> it, it envelops me. All the energy that I have thrown out that envelops me. So there is a lot of energy we throw out in that. And of course, just to complete that aspect, the mother says, especially when this gossip is with a language which is very crude and vulgar. She says it's like committing spiritual suicide. She said it in context within the ashram, playground. And the mother used to be in the, there is a room of the mother where sometimes she would give private interviews. And outside people were waiting for her to come and take classes and they would gossip. All kinds of things. From, you know, what's happening somewhere to, you know, meaningless absurdities. And in that context... Sometimes people would fight and even fight with, you know, using a language which is obviously filth. And we block all these channels through all this filth that we are actually throwing out. Every time we speak through our mouth something which is dark, we lend our tongue to vibrations which are very negative. We are actually throwing filth through this passage. We don't even realize it. And when we throw filth, this whole thing gets blocked and, you know, the passage and all kinds of things would start appearing here. Similarly, with all the parts of our body, every part, she says, is symbolic of an inner movement. So, through that part, we can touch what is going wrong. Actually, looking at the problem... We can almost touch what is going wrong. Take a very simple example. Unkind thoughts make our stomach very, sometimes, you know, sour. We don't realize it. And, you know, over a period of time, we begin to suffer chronic indigestion because there is, you know, all these thoughts, maybe a kind of anger as an undercurrent is being drunk like a poison we are drinking that even when we eat if he is eating it in a state of anger mother goes on to say even when a person is cooking it so we are surrounded by a sea of vibrations we don't even realize it the person who is cooking it what kind of state of consciousness the person is in we swallow it and we swallow it it's like a package deal we have paid for it we are very happy about it that's the sad part of it that we are taking a nice dish and along with that 
that's why i feel the best food ever in the world if you ask anyone eventually will be not mcdonalds not kfc yeah, of course yes ashram but well mother's food mama's food ask anyone now what is special about mother's food apart from whatever conditioning etc is very simple the kind of love that is poured into that food it's something very special it primes us to something very very different and again she says that not only the consciousness of somebody who has cooked it but the occult atmosphere it brings and the atmosphere in which we eat there was a time when it's about navjaji who asked uh, mother you know there was some problem or the other he was experiencing so mother told him that how do you take your food then he said i am sitting on the table and with people she said no you should take your food alone now this was in a certain context so it can go on to that extent that the people with whom we are sharing a meal and she has used the word called vital interchange all life is about a certain kind of interchange and most of the time this interchange is unconscious we pass by the side of a person and we have caught it the other day we were talking about this law of desires that we go to a market we have nothing in mind and suddenly something catches our attention and uh, for some reason we want to buy it now this is something which happens to us all the time and the mother says this is not to frighten you she says that she says this is not to make you become hyper alert because we cannot change it that way but just to make us conscious and first to extend our awareness that look at what point desire is hitting us at what point it is a need and she says a very simple exercise which you know one can practice supposing you don't get it be in a state of equanimity if you don't get it see what happens inside if there is oh how i wish i got it and there is either a kind of excitement a hope or a kind of you know oh if i don't get it it will be a big loss then there is a problem otherwise if you are in a state of equanimity and there she gives a very simple exercise she says take things which come to you as coming from the divine and when they go from you take it that they are going to the divine it doesn't matter to whom it is given one may give it to a relative who is going to you know we go and purchase clothes and give it to relations so one may say oh how is it going to the divine she says no give it with that consciousness when you give it with that consciousness the interchange the nature of interchange has changed that opens absolutely new doors of understanding life and manipulating it say for instance when i drink water i can drink it purely as water and water is good for my body i can drink water with this awareness that well i invoke mother's grace peace light and may it rejuvenate me in general about food she has said that every time you eat food you should for a while pray that may this food create in me elements which are good for sadhana from the yoga point of view so along with the external thing we are taking something inner which we don't even realize there is a very nice episode in ramayana that when 
Lakshmana is unconscious and it's it's very interesting episode because the uh, physician who is uh, brought to attend on um, Lakshmana is physician from the opposite camp. What high ideals even those times that physicians were not supposed to discriminate between this side and the other side. So Sushen the physician is called and he says get Sanjeevani Bhuti. Hanuman goes and he brings that whole mountain. We know this part of the story. But then as soon as he brings the mountain, everybody is eagerly waiting impatiently to jump onto it and take it and give it. So the physician said, hold on, hold on, wait. He says, why? Look, morning is about to come. It's nearing. He says, no, it won't work like that. So he invokes the spirit of healing in that herb. That you have certain healing properties in you. Now after that invocation he gives it. So this whole interchange of forces that we have with the environment. It's not that we should get scared and we should shut ourselves into a fortress. We are all the time surrounded by vibrations. And the mother says there are three types of it. One is a real, real bad will which is malevolent, which is wicked like very... People throw these kind of vibrations very consciously and deliberately onto others. There is another which is not so much like that, but like every time we are criticizing someone, it is a kind of ill will, whether we like it or not. And the third one, she says it's ignorant. We don't even realize it and it's there. And she says, well, each of them does its work. It's a will and by its nature, will is something which goes out and acts and this is going to act well. She says it's it's a safety that most human beings don't have enough energy and force within them to throw it with that kind of power. But that's the whole logic behind cursing. What exactly is curse? Curse is precisely this, that somebody who throws a tremendous ill will into the atmosphere. And if there is a certain kind of energy associated with it, it has its effect. This is how the dark side of the occult works. There is a bright side also. The same thing can uh, be used in another way. When in the ashram context, when somebody's parents would get ill and the person would ask, can I go? Of course, to everyone, mother gave a different answer. So we should not reduce it into a fixed formula. For instance, to someone who was wanting to go to attend her mother, his mother and... Um, Another sadhak gave him a big gyan that, no, 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 why do you want to go? You have offered everything to Tutta Divine. Then mother wrote back to this advising sadhak, let him go and attend to his only you know, mother who is old. But in another context, he would say, you can help the person much more by being here. It's amazing. How can we help much more? Simply by offering a prayer. She has said this and you know, the other day, we were listening to a couple of examples like that. That's what rebirth is about. Change the battery, change the body. The most perfect, complete organ transplant done free of cost. That's what death is. So henceforth we should never be scared. What is death? The most complete, perfect organ transplant done absolutely free of cost. It's a total package deal. Nature says, I'll give you a completely new body, everything new, brand new, guaranteed for 100 years. But of course, we tend to, you know, do so much mess with it that 
40 years onwards, it begins to show up cracks. So, basically, she says that it's not to frighten you, but basically, we can surround ourselves with a sea of protect, with a whole aura of protection. There is something given to us by the very fact that we are born on earth, just as yesterday we were reading. There is something like an inner guide, an inner deity given to us. Nobody is an orphan. She has given us something, a portion of herself to guide us and lead us. Similarly, we are given a protection, an aura of protection. And we don't see it, but those who have a subtle sight can see it. It doesn't require even a subtle sight actually. With a little practice, with a little awareness, with a little awakening into the subtle. And the method is very simple. One reason why we are not able to see the subtle things is because we are too much glued on the physical phenomena. If you really want to develop subtle sight, one of the method is while you are looking at someone, don't exactly look at the person, but look a little behind. Caution. Don't do it with people who are very close to you. They will take you amiss. <laughs> they would think you are not interested in them. And then they will ask you, don't you <laughs> love me anymore? So, you know, be careful. So, but otherwise, if you learn to look beyond you will see the play of energies and it takes the form of an aura. And this is given to us as the first layer of protection. And if we take care to keep it fine, in a good condition, most of the illnesses, not that there is an absolute guarantee, but most of the illnesses can be stayed away. Now, the interesting part of this subtle envelope is that they, it is fed by two things. One is the material condition of the body, and the other is the psychological condition of a being. Now, material condition is, you know, very simple. If we don't sleep enough, it damages it. Many of the diseases nowadays are being traced to sleep problems. And one wonders how insightful Shakespeare was when he wrote sleep that knits the raveled sleeve of care. So, you know, whole day we are full of care and burdened with anxiety, we sleep and something has happened and next day morning we are a little better. Of course, Mother has spoken of we go deeper and deeper through layers and layers. There are phases and stages of sleep till we touch base with something very essential and fundamental within us, a core of light, a core of peace, a core of beatitude and again we come back rejuvenated. That little contact is enough to rejuvenate us for the rest of the day. How much better if we can time to time plunge inside and come in active contact with it. But of course we have to make the passage. The passage is in the waking awareness not made in sleep. It's easy because nature has created that. So there are two aspects of it. One is the material conditions which includes certain things that we eat. Um, take a very simple example about vegetarianism and non-vegetarianism. We can look at it one from a very external point of view. External point of view is, well, we have studied nowadays and found that by and large, in general, vegetarian food is better. Now, this is a knowledge which is, you know, uh, coming across and spreading across the world. But from an inner point of also view, it is very simple to understand. What really is a plant? The plant contains that much vitality which nourishes the material life. It is basically that is the first layer of vital consciousness which sprouts in a plant. Plant life is matter plus just that vitality which would nourish the 
matter enough to give it life. So plant life is that. What is animal life? In animal life, the cells are imprinted not only with that. They are imprinted with vibrations of rage and fear. Two things which animals experience very often. So every time we take meat or you know animal products, not animal products, but let's say you know that consciousness, we are basically also absorbing something of those vibrations. Whereas every time we eat a plant product, we are being safeguarded from those vibrations. And that is why non-vegetarianism on the other hand also gives, gives us a go-getter attitude, a killing instinct. In ancient times, the Kshatriya clan, the warriors, were advised to take non-vegetarian food. It's very interesting because it gave them that kind of um, aggressive attitude which they needed. They were absorbing along with the food. Whereas when one turns towards a higher life, it's better to avoid it because to an extent, not that these things uh, should be taken absolute that we will come to little later, but to a certain extent, one makes the consciousness or at least keeps it lighter, other makes it heavy and tied down to the lower vibrations. Of course, one goes further and one should not uh, turn spirituality into a kitchen spirituality. That is the uh, big problem with uh, you know this kind of knowledge. Once um, as a youngster, just that since childhood I never had non-veg. This just happened. Born in a certain family, never never tasted it. I just don't know what non-veg tastes like. And obviously after a certain age you don't uh, have any inclination. It was not at all to my credit. Uh, not at all even to my parents' credit because you know it came down the generations. So I remember once going to a certain ashram and they... Um, asked me, do you take non-veg? I said, no. Do you smoke? No. Do you drink? No. Oh, you're already half spiritual. So I was quite shocked because I was an agnostic at that point of time. I said, no, I don't believe. <laughs> I don't believe in any God at this point of time. So this is one kind of a extreme where we turn spirituality into kitchen spirituality. Now, one can enter into a still vaster consciousness where one can eat without being affected because you know one has mastered these vibrations and energies and anything one can absorb. There is a very interesting story about Sage Agastya. There are many interesting stories attributed to him. One of them is about two demons, Vatabi and his brother. Now what these people used to do, it's a very occult story that they would invite all these sages and um, they had they knew a kind of vidya by which the dead can be reconstituted. This story has many dimensions. So they would invite them and the brother would, I am forgetting his name, would kill Vatapi and serve him as meat. And the unsuspecting person would eat it and then suddenly the brother would say, Vatapi and come out and chant that particular mantra and he would emerge bursting through the stomach. Obviously, it's a very symbolic story. When we read the, read the full story, we'll get the meaning. So they tried these tricks and many of these sages died in the process. Uh, then one day, sage Agast came to their place. He knew what they are doing. And he asked them, do you have something to eat? He said, yes, now this is very welcome. We have a chance now to blow up this great uh, sage also. So he does the same trick. Vatapi is eaten by Agastya. Then the brother chants the mantra 
and says, Vatapi, come out. No response. He again chants. He says, something has gone amiss. So Sage Agas smiles and says, well, you know, I have digested him. He won't come out anymore. So there is a state of consciousness in which one can absorb anything. It's a very vast consciousness. But as normal human beings, what we are, we should not feign to be living in that state of Brahman where, you know, we can absorb anything. It's better to observe certain very simple uh, precautions about life. And one of them is to understand this law of interchange. Now, this law of interchange can extend to anything. We can talk to plants, we can talk to things that are around, we can talk to the elements. They can be beneficial, very strangely. When people complained uh, in Pondicherry, they say it's very hot. So, mother said, make friends with the sun. And she said something very interesting, it will cure you of your anemia. Now imagine, you know, walking in the sun will cure me of anemia. By any human logic or scientific logic, one would wonder how does it do it. But really one can try, you know, one should try to do these kind of experiments. I don't have anemia, but now I enjoy walking in the sun. It really rejuvenates. I, I mean, there is no problem at all. Just you have to make friends with it. But our first thought is, oh my God, it's so hot. Even before we have entered into the sun, no, we just step out of the room and it's so hot. Wait, let's, you know, let let poor son do a little bit of... He's trying to embrace us. He loves us. You know, he's, he's like a benevolent father. He's trying to take us into his arms and say, Baby, I love you. And we say, Oh my God, it's so hot. Now imagine if we do it to our father, how bad he will feel. He will say, Look, I want to give you certain things and you are... Child, you are shunning even my contact. Whereas if we say, thank you daddy, please, be a little gentle. <laughs> I love your embrace. Be a little gentle daddy, you are really very, very tough, tough for me. <laughs> so he will make us strong enough to not only bear but nourish us and nurture us. It's equally true of rain. One can make friends with the rain, enjoy it. It doesn't make us sick and give cold and all this. All this is nonsense. I've walked in rain for one and a half hours in Bangalore driven 20 kilometers in rain pouring through that rain pouring rain and on scooter not in car of course <laughs> on scooter <laughs> with my little baby in front and <laughs> my wife behind and we all enjoyed it and nothing happens this is all our mental formation so we come to that other aspect that we are full of all kinds of formations full of all kinds of Thus it will happen, thus it will not happen. If you do this, this will happen. If I eat curd, I am going to fall sick. Self-fulfilling prophecy. If I do this, I will have this attack of asthma. Well, a lot of things within the body are habitual responses. And we reinforce it simply with our mind which lives in a kind of construct. And when we go to a doctor, he many times puts even more iron walls and gives new constructs. Now, this is not to say that we should not, you know, we should throw all caution to the winds. It's all right. If you have angina, don't run. Basically, angina is telling you, take it slowly, take it easy. You are running too much, probably in your vital nature as well as in your outer life. Take it easy. Fine. But at the same time, 
anything, even if you take a few steps, if you climb, every kind of pain, you know, is another heart attack which is going to come. So we begin to become trapped in all kinds of mental constructions. And we have to be very careful what kind of constructions we are absorbing. It's very good to have helpful constructions. We can make constructions. This is the inner dwelling place in which we are living. We are not even aware of it. My inner constructions can be full of fear. Fear of everything. As Sri Krishna tells Arjuna, what is it you are not afraid of? You are afraid of this, you are afraid of that, you are afraid of sin, you are afraid of evil. What is it that you are not afraid of? So, he literally admonishes him. So, we live in a house built of multiple constructions and we have never challenged these constructions. We have not even looked at them, how rational we are, uh, you know, those constructions are. Leave aside deeper things, even some very, very, you know, irrational constructions that we have built, which have actually no sense. It's just that our mind wants to believe it and it believes it and every time we do something, it experiences things like that. But many of these things are simply constructions of the mind. And that's one reason why it's never good to label yourself with an illness, even a physical illness. Of course, in psychological illnesses, we talk about labeling, even at the most physical level. Um, Often people who develop blood sugar, they carry a card. I am diabetic. Of course, it's given for a reason. Well, if he falls unconscious, everybody should know that, you know, he's a diabetic. So they do the right thing. They give you a shot of uh, maybe glucose and then check your blood sugar, whether it's hypoglycemia or what is the problem. Well, um, okay, fine, whatever its utility, but it can serve also as a negative mantra. Just as a positive mantra is, I am that. So how must me? So how must me? By constantly dwelling upon the idea that I am that, I begin to realize that I am really that. Equally, if I keep on chanting like a mantra, I am diabetic, I am diabetic, I am diabetic. I have start with metformin, go on to oral hypoglycemics, go on to insulin. And God knows in future pancreatic cells replacement, stem cell therapy will come. But it's a mantra. I, I am not a diabetic. A part of my body is not functioning well. It is not in equilibrium with the rest. It's not in sync with the rest. I have to set it right. I need to take medication immediately. But I can set it right by other means. I can talk to my body. I need to tell my pancreas, look, I need a little more insulin. I'm going to cut down on the sugars. I promise you this. It should be a two-way thing. You know, the body should not feel, look, this is quite bad. You know, I used to talk to my scooter at some point of time. I'm not crazy. Well, I had named it Toddy. And I had a very good relation with it. So, the only, one and only scooter I had in my life. And um, I would talk to Toddy. And whenever, you know, naturally it was 20-year-old. At I'm talking of that point of time and... Though I would time to time give it for servicing, it was telling me, look, I'm, I'm getting old. So, so if I would start, there is a problem, it's not going. So mostly it was uh, either going and seeing a patient or the office or to uh, the Bhavan. Those were the activities. So I would tell, look, Toddy, I really need your help. I'm so sorry. I haven't looked after you inwardly. Huh? If I speak aloud, they would live in I need your help and cooperation. Please help me out. Just, you know, I want to go and come back. I promise you that tomorrow I'll take you. 
actually you know it used to work and people have witnessed it my friends have seen it they would offer that low okay come with us i would say no no wait i need to you know talk to toddy and if i would miss out for two days it has also happened it's a real experience if i would miss out for two days to take him or him well it to 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 the dealer again the problem would start it was reminding me literally look i mean you are not being fair and uh, it was very unfortunate that i this not you know about attachment to material things mother has said you should deal with it with consciousness not to deal with material things consciously is a sign of inconscience and she says we should not uh, deal with them consciously because we are attached to them but because there is consciousness in them and you know it's one learns it in so many ways so when i went finally to far east in assam on my last posting and you know there was no way i could get that and i had to you know uh, look for somebody to take toddy it was amazing that for days whenever i would try and a customer would come it just won't start and when i would kick it would start and this happened with six seven customers who came who were willing to take the scooter but it just won't start and i knew what's going wrong so i had to literally i did an exercise of taking toddy around first jorhat and i said look this is a beautiful place look you are really good you have really taken care of me all this i spoke and communicated till finally it worked out i am telling you a real life experience i have read about the studies on water and people have you know done incantations and they have spoken to the water that you are good you are good and you are good and the water when they took crystallographic images it gave very nice images when they said you are bad you are bad it showed images of a broken crystal when they chanted a mantra the water showed a central light as if it's radiating so if water can respond like that well i'm sure human beings can also respond like that so we can improve even our relationships by very simple things one simple things that we forget about in our relationships another source of pathology and problem in our life is we just fail to appreciate and we have to wait well okay fine we as yogis are not supposed to, we are supposed to be beyond praise and yes that's for myself it's not to for somebody else to practice it <laughs> very often we misapply this rule we say i'll not appreciate anyone because appreciation is bad well it's good to appreciate someone well as for oneself one should try to rise beyond praise and blame so that's a very these are very very simple things when we deal and interact with people learning to accept learning to love learning to really give our best at a very very human basic level we are not talking of some high things and finally this body can be made open this we have already test upon to higher and higher frequencies and higher and higher ranges of consciousness and that is a practice that we have to really do in the morning so beautifully we had shadalu give us this sea of ocean of peace and calm in a very beautiful letter shirobindo says there is an ocean of calm and peace and joy above us it right there we have to just call it we don't even call it the more we call it the more it enters slowly slowly up till here we can feel it what happens as we it comes down we are just saying it here but we are not able to experience it because things are blocked the energy is not able to descend
this is easy enough so with practice there is a very simple um, i think dada gave this prayer and it's very interesting mother be in my head and in my thoughts mother be in my mind and in my understanding mother be in my eyes and in my sight be in my ears and in my hearing we have the upanishadic prayer bhadram mm, that you know may i see the auspicious may i hear the auspicious so mother be in my mouth and in my speech mother be in my heart and in my feelings mother be in my lungs and in my breathing mother be in my abdomen and in my organs mother be in my legs and in my feet mother be in my arms and in my hands any problems and of course it has to be practiced not that one day we will suddenly do it when we are ill and expect things to happen also we have to be in a right condition to receive these things we cannot do it oh my god peace 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 is not coming you <laughs> can't call these higher energies like that we have to do them with the joy she says call it as you call a friend shanti 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 not shanti 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 it's you know it makes a difference simple thing peace 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 will come it wants to come the benevolent energies are there to come and enter into us but we should not do it with a state of uh, distrust will it come will it not come is it true is it not true mother says what is the point of asking if you are full of distrust so ask and call and receive now from the other end we can do something to make ourselves more receptive and that's where comes the whole um, other side of the yoga to make our aadhar both strong and receptive and open how to make the body open and receptive one simple way is physical culture and in physical culture there are two aspects certain things which augment our capacity and certain things which increase consciousness in the body now things that increase capacity are obviously certain exercises they will increase capacity of various kinds in the legs in the hands in the heart and it has to be harmonious and it should be it's a whole scientific field and i'll not get into it but one should combine a very good range type of exercises both kinds which eventually augment our capacity at the physical level because if the bodily container is very small it cannot receive much even a little extra prana comes into it it's thrown off balance we suffer from both from the pranic standpoint from a depletion of prana and from an excess of prana there is pranic congestion and we are not able to release that both kinds of energy have you experienced feeling very excited but not knowing how to express it how uncomfortable it can be almost one becomes like a toy and a tool so if our container is very small we get moved by prana very easily like a toy we will see especially when children are still developing they are so full of prana but the container is so small so poor fellows are jumping all around and we tell them don't do this don't be naughty sit down do this they have prana and the container is small and especially children who bring in a lot of prana along with them like hanuman what we need is to teach them how to channelize fine jump okay jump here jump this much jump that much wonderful wow now the child is engaged 
Instead of telling, don't jump on the sofa, you are spoiling it. So after a while he jumps on the bed, don't jump on the bed. Don't jump here, you will fall down. Don't jump there. So eventually, you know, basically he is just experiencing a lot of prana. Shobinda at one place says, what is vice? He says, vice is excess energy flowing into unregulated channels. And then he reveals a very great truth of inner psychology, which we often don't understand. He says, great men have great vices because they bring tremendous energy with them. And then he gives example of Napoleon being terribly egoistic, debauch and whatnot. Shakespeare prone to stealing deer. In our own myth, we have Hanuman, full of energy. He would pluck the beard of all the sages, go and eat the sun. He is, you know, he is just like a reckless adolescent. And these reckless children, I mean these children with so much energy, they sometimes can be very, very beautiful instrument. And he is so reckless that even the gods have to hit him and say, look, you will forget all your, you know, energy. It will be taken away from you and it will be given to you when the right time comes. So we have that famous thing in, you know, Ramayana when he, everybody says we have to jump the ocean. Hanuman, you can do it. He says, no, no, I have no strength. Till then Hanuman has forgotten his strength. And that time, because he has to do God's work, it's a very occult thing that when we do the divine work, a lot of energy is given to us. When mother was asked this, she said, my child, my children who are working for me have no business to fall ill. She has even scolded sometimes. What? You have no reason to fall ill. You are working for me? You have no reason. Now, <laughs> what was that? Sometimes, like a Mahakali, she would drive away illness. This story recounted in a beautiful book, Unforgettable Moments, where Preeti Dee comes and uh, she is running fever and mother scolds her. Go away! Something she says. So she is terrified. What is it I am having fever and mother has given me a scolding? Since then I realized mother was not scolding me. She was scolding the fever. <laughs> she asked the fever to go away. Because she realized that you know it just vanished. She was unnecessarily feeling bad. So when we work for the divine, a tremendous amount of energy is given to us. Some people bring that kind of energy store. Those who come from larger planes of consciousness, they bring that abundant energy. Equally, when we start working for a great ideal or a great aim, enormous amount of energy is released. Why this is not released? Normally, because we have petty aims, small aims. Everyday life of man, we should be content with that. Eat, drink, sleep. Eat, drink, sleep. Eat, drink, sleep. So whatever little energy is given, it gets more and more, more and more closed into a small circle. And we call that smallness, contentment and simplicity and spirituality and divinity and God knows what. So that's the problem. But when energy comes, the other problem is that it gets into unregulated channels. So we have to understand that how this play of energy takes place. And more and more, we have to make our body receptive and wide. So, if we don't make the consciousness wide and plastic and supple, we are not able to receive it. So, a lot of physical exercises, physical culture is about augmenting the capacity, the natural capacity. Of course, it is done in this way, it can be done in the other way. And the other aspect of physical culture is to infuse consciousness. 
in the morning we were speaking about walking up to the dais and though thank you vinay for appreciating the walk but <laughs> i take it with a lump full of salt the the thing is we have to be conscious and at one point when mother was asked which of the exercises are better is this form of exercise better or that form of exercise because you know in the ashram context we have all kinds of exercise there is you know one can do hot yogic exercises one can do uh, gym there is a very elaborate gym one can go swimming one can play tennis one can move into the sports ground and playground the mother said from our experience we have found that no one particular system of exercises can be regarded as the best whatever exercise you do with consciousness with a yogic attitude becomes yogic exercise and she gives a very simple example she says if you walk up climb up and down the ladder unfortunately we have lifts now staircase you do it with consciousness now what is our consciousness that time we are lost in our worries but if we do it consciously the whole body we become conscious of every movement and it infuses consciousness into the cells there is a prayer of the mother where she speaks of Uh, from the cellular consciousness that now we are awakening to the necessity of transformation she says a prayer of the cells of the body so everything within us must pray whole life must act change into an act of adoration there is a very nice little zen story where a rabbi takes all his disciples to a theater we are going to theater tomorrow to watch a program and the rabbi tells them before they settle down look you prayed and you came now you will watch prayer in action she says at one place work is the body's best prayer to the divine every day work can become a prayer whole life can change into an act of mystic adoration it's not that we have to go to a temple or a center or this place or that place to offer our work our whole life can change into an adoration of the divine of course uh, having said that there is the other side of the truth that there is work of the divine and the work for the divine all our life can change into work for the divine but there is something called as work of the divine and when we link ourselves with that it changes our life completely so this is the whole journey that we start from the ignorance of material life we are exploring it scientifically we have become aware of some of the material forces as we go further we have reached a kind of void now we have to make a leap so we'll next enter into the phase of becoming aware of the vital energies and the vibrations that move us in its own way science is becoming aware of that and how to manipulate them if the drug markets allow next we will become aware of the mental world and the mental energies that move us and going further we will become aware of the immense storehouse of spiritual energies and spiritual consciousness and when we learn to attune our body to the higher consciousness and all its rhythms it may take maybe a couple of centuries now we are starting with this idea all of us but this body has been prepared through millenniums and millions of years it responds to the forces of ignorance mother says the reason why we fall ill is because the body is open to all kinds of lower forces it's not readily open to the higher consciousness inner being is open we can open our inner being but the body doesn't respond so readily it opens to the lower forces of ignorance that you know the moment one is excited about going somewhere where you know 
the usual stuff is there immediately one is ready to go but if one has to go let's say to a center to do some kind of a work or even a meditation center one thinks twice and three times and it's such a strain this is just to give a very very small outer example and when we open to these things the body is so dense it doesn't open at all so first the inner consciousness opens then the physical body opens if we do physical culture if we do it consciously then we make the body consciousness also open to these forces and these energies and one day when we are able to link the two then we can arrive at that point where we read in savitri today a deep concordant between earth and heaven and this is a human journey towards which we are moving from a state of illness to a state of perfect health i'll stop here it's a very big subject and i think i have already spoken more than was necessary but uh, maybe 10 minutes we can have quick question we have i think 4 o'clock is the break yes 4 o'clock okay we have 10 minutes can okay. any questions okay i'll go yes please i don't know i already have um when we receive uh, all the wonderful things from mother or from whatever talk about being grateful and thankful how do we do that through a love and joy in the heart that mother you exist that is one of the simplest way through an urge to serve her in whatever way she leads us through intensifying our aspiration by throwing out all that obstructs her free and wide action within us all these are so many ways of expressing gratitude but the most perfect way is to be a living example of all that we are receiving from her to be what she wants us to be is ultimately you see how does a child eventually express gratitude to towards his or her mother who has done so much let's say given a situation where mother mothers pour out their heart onto a child how does a child express gratitude he may say well mom thank you so much well that's not what mothers are very pleased about it's fine it's good it you know they feel connected but the best is that the mothers want the child to be molded into a certain image of course human mothers do it ignorantly so we are you know the analogy should end there but eventually the best thing is to become what she wants us to become as truly children of the divine vast full of peace and joy within our hearts open to the divine presence free of all these things which are like plagues afflicting mankind and to become a beacon light in front of a mass of darkness within and around us that's the best way to offer gratitude yes please first perfection stage is reached why is it a brief stage between death and birth and not between birth and death oh <laughs> yeah that's very interesting if you read the whole lines the actually i would suggest that you know 
I could give you a sense about it. But I would suggest that you dwell upon these lines. Whenever in Savitri we meet a particular line which is exceptionally sounds difficult to us, it's always best to just dwell upon those lines to let the meaning emerge. This is what I would suggest. I know, but I can't. <laughs> what is your intuitive feeling? Yeah, it'll it's come. See, when the whole being is psychicized, the life that we were living before that, I mean, there are so many intuitive revelations that can come. One particular revelation is that this is the birth, this is the real awareness, the awakening, a new life into which we are born. And the life that we were leading was like a death, the darkness of ignorance in which we were living. So between death and birth. So we have moved from a state of death and gone towards a state of birth. And it's not between birth and death which is the normal way of human life. I think that's where your intuition is also pointing. Right? That it's... Yes. That normally our life is lived... Many mystics have used this kind of a simile that even in Shobindo's one of his poems on life and death, he says when we awaken to a greater life, we discover that what we thought as life was death. And we awaken to something which we called as death and it is teeming with a greater life. So this state of perfection changes, it's like a reversal. The mother has used the term reversal of consciousness. So in that reversal, things which we thought is full of life was actually living like death, more closer to the animal kind. And things towards which we were dead, because we were unconscious, we are born to that. So it's a birth. So between birth and death. In the Gita there is a cryptic phrase which says, Ya Nisha Sarva Bhuta Nam, that which is a night to many, the adept is awake in those fields. It is, of course, uh, understood, again, like any mystic phrase, it has several layers of meaning. So this is one of the layers of meaning which can be revealed to us intuitively. But having said that, I would once again suggest that you keep dwelling upon it, new revelations will come. So, But this is an, you know, Savitri is a revelatory poem and um, I always say that never try to find meaning by the intellectual analytical mind. So the way I use is, I can uh, tell you if a line strikes me like that, I just try to be quiet. I don't try to rush on to, oh it could mean this, oh it could mean that, I've read this, I've read that. Within minutes pop, a meaning will come, a sense will come. So revelatory uh, seeings have to be received through a receptive sense. And once we are attuned to the basic thing, that revelations will awaken within us. But, as I said, new layers of meaning can come. I have seen people write a whole essay, and I will not name, but, you know, authorities on uh, this aspect, you know, what the dawn represents in Savitri. And uh, when I read it, my instant intuitive sense was something else. 
uh, what that symbol meant. And when I read from a very authoritative source uh, something very different, I wondered because the intuitive sense was very clear that this is what it means. Very strangely, this thing was going on because I had recently read that. Recently means during those days when I had recently read. Within a few days, I uh, Huta's book uh, came into my hand. And there this whole thing about the divine event, actually there is a whole thing written about what the divine event is. Creation itself is a divine event. And the mother has actually, she put a, a stamp of authority on that intuitive sense that I had. And not on the whole analytical understanding of that word, that why divine event, why it is referring to this and why it is not referring to that based on pure grammar. So, Savitri is not at all about that. And the intuitive sense can come to us very spontaneously and to any of us. It's not about any particular person. So, the lesser we, uh, you know, quieten the mind. Of course, a familiarity, I agree, that it's necessary to be familiar with the basic uh, poem, feel of the poem. So, that's how it is. Uh, <clears throat> I am vegetarian. I am the minority, but the world population is about 4 trillion people and I think less than 20% people are vegetarian as mother said that meat consumption is not good for the human body. Then why the 80% are eating uh, meat? Yeah, to begin with mother has not said that. She has said well at a certain stage of development Automatically it happens and it has a certain advantage. That's what she has said. She has not said one should not eat meat. There are different kinds of humanity and each should, uh, you know, exist. So it only indicates uh, probably a certain, what would be more indicative is that 10 years back, what was the trend and what is the trend today? When I had joined the Indian Air Force, um, it was almost trendy to not only eat meat but to hold a glass of liquor in your hand and you know smoke and if you didn't do these things you were regarded as oh what kind of a creature you are you are some alien so you know it was a very strange thing and uh, you would feel yourself very odd because you know all your friends with whom you are fine and open but you know they feel very odd about you and uh, because of that a kind of peer pressure they actually got me onto smoking a cigarette and, you know, holding a glass of wine in my hand. But the strange part is that, um, you know, people get very nice commands from the Divine Mother. My first command when I stood before her, I did not know she is the mother and nothing. It just entered and I really heard an Adesh stop smoking. And it, after that, the urge went away. I started it within month I was hooked on to it and for one and a half years I was struggling with this habit. How to get rid of it? Tried all kinds of things, costly brands, brands which are not available in that place. Now all my pilot friends will bring it knowing that I am having and I told them look I mean that's not the purpose but a part of me will enjoy also. So you know it was like <laughs> then you know I would walk a distance of three kilometers to pick up a cigarette. And I found that I have got a compulsion now to walk. Now, you know, all this I tried and it just won't get. It would come to 2, 3, 2, 3, go on to 5. Again, 2, 3, go on to 5. Till suddenly I heard this Adesh. When I came out, I suddenly discovered next day that I am not even having an urge. 
one year nothing then like a fool after i think 2 3 years i you know somebody was smoking i thought let me see has it gone away really for good <laughs> why i'm sharing this example because you should never do this i was fortunate i took one puff and i had the exactly same experience which i had when i had started it you know during those internship days you feel you know smoking is trendy and i realized it's really bad and fortunately that was the end of the story now the trend today by the even by the time i took premature retirement i was there with the air force for nearly 20 years whole trend had changed vegetarianism was being encouraged drinking was you know if a pilot was drinking most people started feeling you know well he's not a safe guy and uh, you know smoking had already cut down now we have smoking smoking zones so i feel the trend is towards positive very often the immediate figures can be uh, very deceptive at the same time i feel that there should be in this humanity we also need uh, you know people who who need to fight and it's okay to eat meat you know that's a kind of humanity is fine and as i said one should not make a fetish of it it's okay i mean if one eats it one of those things which will drop away when the time comes but trends are towards vegetarianism if trends are indicative